go back to the Paris Climate Agreement, there was very, very little being discussed there about food. Now it's on the agenda. Welcome to Radio Davos and our series of episodes on climate change and COP26. This week, a sector that produces a third of all greenhouse gas emissions and affects every single one of us every single day, food. If the restaurant industry in the United States was its own country, it would be sitting at these climate conferences at anywhere from number 11 to 17. We talked to a food journalist who sounded the alarm not just about the climate impacts of food, but also about the risks of relying, as we do, on just a dozen or so plant and animal species. We are right now living through one unparalleled experiment. We have created so much change in the human diet and we've transformed agriculture so much so quickly. We do not know what the outcomes of those changes will be. And we hear how restaurants could make a big impact by greening up their act. We look at transportation and cars, electrification, but we also have to take a look at this industry that is consuming about half of the food budget. Radio Davos is the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, leave us a rating and a review, and join us on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. I'm Robin Pomeroy at the World Economic Forum, and we look at climate change, food, and the choices we all make about how we eat. One of the most undervalued thing in a capitalist society is the customer's self-awareness that they are the voters of that company. This is Radio Davos. When it comes to climate change and greenhouse gas emissions, we often think first of power generation or heavy industry, transport, but what about away from the factories and city streets? What about farming and food? It turns out that food production emits a third of human-made greenhouse gas emissions. Think of things like land clearance and emissions from cattle. Demand for food will continue to increase as the global population reaches 10 billion by 2050. As a global society, we've become very good at producing a lot of food cheaply. But even so, 2 billion people today still don't get enough to eat. And those that do sometimes risk things like diabetes, heart disease and cancer due in part at least to unhealthy eating. It's a massively complex issue. So this episode will bring you just a couple of interesting stories about food and climate change and how we can eat more sustainably. Later in the show, we'll hear how restaurants can save money and attract customers and staff by going green. But first, my colleague Amanda Russo came across a book called Eating to Extinction about how some of the foods we rely on as a species are at risk. Did you know that 75% of the world's food comes from 12 plant and 5 animal species? Dan Saladino's book says our pork is mainly from one kind of pig, beef from one kind of cow, and we mostly eat one kind of banana. Saladino says we're putting ourselves at risk of the kind of thing that led to the Irish potato famine where monoculture was one of the culprits for a disaster that killed a million people. Saladino, a British food journalist, says that just as climate change action is intertwined with conserving nature and biodiversity, so food production and consumption needs to be much more diversified to become sustainable. Dan began by telling Amanda some more of those startling food facts. Most of the world's seeds, so more than 50% of the world's seed supply and trade is now in the hands of four corporations. One in four beers is the product of a single brewer. And the list goes on of that process of consolidation. Ask a financial advisor, you know, that idea of putting all your shares into a very small portfolio. It's a risky business. And so, Dan, there's actual meaning behind the phrase, not putting all your eggs in one basket. And absolutely really sums it up. Food can go extinct if we don't diversify. Is this true? Um, and how does this diversification, why does it matter? The Irish potato famine was a situation in which the same 
genetically uniform potato was planted in the same fields. And the problem being that that crop became extremely vulnerable to a blight, a fungal disease. And the, the outcome was a million people died. So the, these diseases have been a challenge, it is, but the scale of uniformity is new. That, that's the key idea of the Green Revolution. And just a quick word on the Green Revolution. One of the main architects of this post-war move to breed new plants, new high-yielding disease-resistant plants, Norman Borlaug, was awarded the Nobel Prize in recognition of the fact that by creating these new wheats, followed by new varieties of rice, we could feed a lot of people. They were super efficient. But even Norman Borlaug was saying at the time, this is not a long-term solution. More structural things need to change in the food system. So in the 70s, people were already ringing alarm bells saying, we applaud the work that's gone in to create these new types of wheat and rice. It's creating a lot of calories. In our understanding of human history and plant science, we are taking a risk. And so, Dan, give us an example. So one story in the book, it's about maize. It takes the reader to Oaxaca. And growing high up in a mountainous village was, a scientist discovered in the late 1970s, a very unusual type of maize that was 16 feet tall, and it had aerial roots which dripped mucus. And this remained a mystery to scientists for decades. They couldn't figure out Firstly, what was going on with this plant? Why was it dripping this strange, gooey mucus? And the second thing they couldn't resolve was, how was this maize growing so high up in relatively infertile soil? And they weren't using the traditional system where they intercrop maize with legumes that fertilize the soil. It was a mystery. And it's only in the last three years that an American plant scientist called Alan Bennett has been able to use new um, analytical techniques to look into this mucus and realize that it's full of millions of different types of bacteria, which are in a trade-off with the plant. So the bacteria are taking nitrogen from the air and fixing it to feed the plant. The plant is releasing sugars to feed the bacteria. And the reason why this is so significant is that we do not find in nature self fertilizing cereal crops and it's so significant because the conversation we're having over climate and carbon one of the big sources of that in the food system is fertilizer synthetic fertilizer which takes a lot of energy to create so just imagine a future in which science can understand even better this self-fertilizing plant and perhaps use that in crop breeding programs and we, we could reduce the amount of fertilizer um, that we're having to manufacture. So that's one example of something that was saved over thousands of years by an indigenous community in an obscure village in Mexico. Something that is being made almost extinct because of really high yielding hybrid developed by, you know, very successful agricultural companies. And also, why should we care? And we should all care because that that obscure maze from a village nobody has ever heard of could be part of our food future. So it seems also like we have a lot of discrepancies. Too much food some places, people eating the wrong kinds of food or too much unhealthy food. How do we square the circle? 
well as you've just highlighted there are parts of the world with too much food and too much of the wrong type of food because of this abundance we created with this high proficiency which meant that actually we were producing so much cereal so much energy from these green revolution crops we could afford to feed it to animals so that the production of meat increased as well we've made more change to human diets in the last 150 years than we have done in the last 1 million years more change in the last 40 generations than in the last 60,000 generations that is an idea that i took from a surgeon called Dennis Burkett who in the 1950s was working in east africa and what he was observing between his tri- trips these so-called western diseases were on the increase cancer obesity you know obesity related illness type 2 diabetes and he, he was not finding those conditions in his east african patients they were dying of other things and obviously we know what they are and that the lack of access to antibiotics they malnourished but they were not dying of type 2 diabetes and obesity related illness and that idea being that we are we are right now living through one unparalleled experiment in that we have created so much change in the human diet and we've transformed agriculture so much so quickly we do not know what the outcomes of those changes will be so it, it might feel successful and look successful on many levels but how can we say it's so so recent these huge changes that we've made and this is why events such as the UN food system summit and cop26 as well are important because you need now to take a holistic approach to food you can't just say turn the tap on and off produce more food less food we now know it is a system and one part of the system will impact on another and that's exactly what we've needed for so long but even if you go back to the uh, paris climate agreements there was very very little being discussed there about food now it's on the agenda I think there's a lot that businesses can do, the governments can do, but a lot of the listeners of Radio Davos are saying, well, what can I do? What as an individual, how can I help? What can we do? Learn the stories of the foods and how diverse they can be. Knowledge is power. And so one thing you can do is as an experiment is take your favorite food. And it could be coffee, it could be chocolate, it could be a type of fruit. Arabica and robusta are just two. of 120 different types of coffee that we never get to hear about. There is one that's been discovered in more recent years called Stenophylla growing in Sierra Leone. Could be tastier than arabica, could be more drought resistant than arabica, more tolerant to climate change. But if you're a coffee lover, there's a huge amount of diversity out there waiting to be discovered. And so you can play a part by just you know having the the experience and the pleasure of indulging in diversity. So, that's step 1. Become a a hunter gatherer with your favorite food. And then ultimately just think about diversity in your diet. The Hadza hunter gatherers from Tanzania and East Africa, the last of the hunter gatherers in Africa not to be practicing any form of agriculture, they have as a potential diet 800 different plant and animal species. I don't know what your 800 Yeah, I don't know what your your diet looks like Amanda in terms of how many... my fridge is not that big Dan. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. It's a clue to us that actually diversity matters at a personal level. And you might not be able to find heritage types of wheat or rice or maize, but that diversity that the hunter gatherers of 
the Hadza practicing is a clue to how we got to where we are today as a survival strategy. And not only that, but this emerging science of the gut microbiome. So all of these trillions of microbes that we host in our guts. And what we now know is that the more diverse our microbiome in our guts, the better that is for our health. And the more diverse our diets, the more diverse our gut microbiomes. We have skin in the game here in terms of we all have an investment in diversity. And that would be something that we should all strive to bring back to our diets. Dan Saladino's book is called Eating to Extinction. Every week on these COP26 episodes of Radio Davos, we're hearing from people around the world on how climate change is affecting them. Natasha Wang Mwansa is a child and women's rights advocate and activist in Zambia, who, appropriately enough for this episode, has something to say about how climate change has hit food production in her country. Natasha Mwansa, I am a 20-year-old Zambian who is a health and young people's rights activist and advocate coming from a place like Zambia. We experienced extreme um, weather changes and in our weather pattern in the last few months. We experienced like an extreme cold season and that had an effect on our agriculture. We haven't had a bumper harvest in such a long time, which means that one of the key sources of income for individuals in the country is lacking. We're losing out on money as a nation economically. And then we also had an extreme weather condition with regards our rain season. It was it was really bad and so it was flooded all around and people contacted waterborne diseases. It was terrible we had cases of cholera and diarrhea and it was just really bad that at some at some point we even had to um kind of had a mini lockdown and people not able to go to school or go to work because of all the contamination with our food and so automatically there's so many health risks associated with this climate change and these extreme temperatures and this really has to change Natasha Mwansa in Zambia. You're listening to Radio Davos where we're talking about food, climate change and sustainability. Before Natasha, we heard Dan Saladino say we might be eating ourselves to extinction. Now another story from Amanda Russo, who's been looking at the restaurant industry. She spoke to Michael Oshman, who's the chief executive and founder of something called the Green Restaurant Association. He's been working with restaurants for the past 30 years to provide them with the expertise and know-how to go green. And that might be something that can be applied by restaurants around the world. Michael Oshman started by setting out the size and impact of the restaurant sector. If the restaurant industry just in the United States was its own country, it would be sitting at these climate conferences at anywhere from number 11 to 17. When you look at the GDP of all the countries with the United States and China and Japan and Germany, da 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 If there was a form of the top 20, the restaurant industry would be in there. The U.S. restaurant industry, not even the worldwide restaurant industry. So what I've been saying for 30 years and what I'd love to impress upon your listeners is that the restaurant industry has a huge part to play in terms of solving climate issues. We look at transportation and cars and electrification. But we also have to take a look at this industry that is really consuming about half of the food budget in countries like the United States and Canada. So let's say if you have a restaurant, what kind of questions should you be asking yourself to say, I want to make my restaurant more sustainable? Where do I start? If I want to build an electric car, where do I start? Well, you know where I start? I don't do it. I have no business building an electric car. 
It's not my background. And a restaurateur's background is hopefully cooking really good food and hopefully knowing how to support their employees and their customers and their vendors and providing a great experience for their end users. But to expect the majority of restaurants to understand the difference of biodegradability, compostability, something that's backyard compostable versus commercial compostable, and then to understand sustainable seafood and all the different certifications and which ones are legitimate, and to understand that that great flyer they got for the styrofoam that's biodegradable is a wonderful piece of greenwashing. And I've just talked for 20 seconds, but I can talk for another 10 minutes and overwhelm you and your listeners with hundreds of data points that will overwhelm the restaurant tour. It is not fair to make them an expert in what's really biodegradable, which products are greenwashing, which products are real, and which ones are right in the middle. So what we really tell restaurants, and we're a nonprofit, we're happy to not be here, but we're still here 30 plus years later is because you have almost a million food service operations just in the United States. Throw that into the world, you've got a lot more than a million. You have millions. And to expect all of those people, some of whom have a master's degree, some of whom have a bachelor's degree, and many of whom just have a high school degree, and many of them have even below that around the world. Ask them to want to spend the time, be able to spend the time. It's not fair. It's not a fair expectation. It's not a realistic expectation. This is what I tell my staff all the time, and it's really a basic communication tool, is speak the language of the person that is listening. Just because you're a sustainability expert doesn't mean that the whole world cares about the complexity of what you know. What does it mean to be a green certified restaurant? The certified green restaurant is the registered trademark of the Green Restaurant Association. And what it means is that they meet these standards. They're either level one, two star, three star, four star. They've met a minimum in the various categories that I mentioned, energy, water, waste, disposables, chemicals. It means that it's transparent. We've got all of the data that demonstrates, oh, 50% of their bulbs are LED. Their spray valves meet this particular standard. All of their toilets meet this standard. So we're doing a deep dive into the data. So instead of there just being this kind of feel-good general statement of, we really love the planet, and we're really dedicated to doing X, Y, Z in the future, which generally is relatively empty. Why talk about what you're going to do when you could talk about what you've done? That's what consumers care about. The level one and two and three are accessible to, I would say, 99.9% of restaurants who could do things that actually not only would not be deleterious to their bottom line, but they'll come out ahead. And then they kick themselves saying, I wish I'd known 10 years ago that I could have saved $5,000 a year and been the good guy and showed up in the newspaper for it. Are you seeing over time consumers and restaurants come to the realization that it's actually good for business to be green? We rarely have to explain what sustainability is and what green is. And, and whereas 30 years ago, we would say, uh, customers like this and Employees like this, and it's really good for your bottom line, but they really weren't hearing it elsewhere. And now they know that they're 
richest man in the world is Elon Musk. And they know that Jeff Bezos, who owns Amazon, bought Whole Foods. They know that Beyond Meat and Impossible Burger, they know that this is good business. It's not just some crazy guy or a small group of crazy guys saying, green is really good for business. You need standards in order to make changes. You need transparency. And that's what certification is. So how do you reach this massive, million-strong restaurant industry? These restaurants and these organizations, nobody would be working with us. I shouldn't say nobody. Very few restaurants would be working with us unless they thought their employees and consumers, stakeholders, stockholders, wanted them to be sustainable. And it's just like politicians. Politicians will reflect their constituents, hopefully, ideally. Businesses might even do a better job. One of the most undervalued thing in a capitalist society is the customer's self-awareness that they are the voters of that company. I think a lot of people are concerned that, oh, it's very expensive to go to restaurants that have this certification. Mm -hmm. And as a normal person, I just want to go out to eat with my family or with my friends have a good meal for a fair price. So what you're saying is restaurants can do this and be green. Not only can they, I would say we've demonstrated that for a couple decades already. We already have enough data to say you might even be getting better prices because either that or the restaurant might be making more profit. Either way, it's good for business because if restaurant A is throwing all the stuff in the garbage and paying way more to have stuff dumped in a landfill. And restaurant B is throwing all that stuff in these other bins and the food's being turned into soil and the paper's being turned into paper. They're getting charged less for their waste to be taken away. Their electricity bill is lower. Their water bill is lower. They're spending less money on training their employees because they have higher retention. They have a better group of employees. They're getting more free marketing by being a certified green restaurant. We've been in over a thousand media from Wall Street Journal, New York Times to Fox News, CBS, NBC. These restaurants are getting more media. So if you flip it and you say these restaurants are operating in a much more quote unquote conservative way, meaning they're saving money, they're using less resources, both environmentally and also financially, then it could be that when everybody else is raising their rates in two months because electricity went up, Maybe your favorite certified green restaurant is either raising it less or not raising it at all because they're better positioned. Michael Oshman from the Green Restaurant Association was speaking to Amanda Russo. Next week on Radio Davos, we continue our COP26 climate series with a look at energy. Fundamentally, renewable energy is cheaper. You know, there are no input costs. Once you've built the generation, wind, solar and so on, it is much cheaper than fossil fuels to run. An environmentalist turned energy entrepreneur who says he has the technology to become the Uber of energy. What we need to do to capitalize on that cheap energy when it's available is use this technology to shift sort of supply and demand around in a highly fluid way. Technology is going to be great at that. 
That's on next week's Radio Danvos. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast to make sure you don't miss it. Leave us a rating and review and join the conversation on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club. Look for that on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was researched and reported by Amanda Russo. Studio production was by Gareth Nolan. I'm Robin Pomer. I'll be back next week with a look at climate change and energy. But for now, thanks to you for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>